0: Hello, and welcome to The Field Guys. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And we are also here with Dan. Good morning, Dan. Morning, Bill and Steve. Thanks for having me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're like a kid in a candy store right now, being out here with you two. (laughs) (laughs) And folks, we want to say Happy New Year, because this is our first episode of 2021. Bill, you're slacking off. (laughs) (laughs) Me? (laughs) I think we're all slacking up. Yeah, that's a good point. But there is a reason that there's been a delay between episodes besides the usual reason. It's Dan's fault. Yes. <laughs> Dan, For sure. We lined Dan up here to come out with us because he is an expert photographer of owls, right? I would say uh, amateur
1: wildlife photographer and emphasis on the amateur. Okay. But, uh... Oh, I know plenty of amateur
2: botanists
0: and whatnot that are just as impressive as professionals. Well, Folks the background story is that we had the idea to do a, a snowy owl episode and in conversations with Dan he had expressed some interest in being on the podcast we figured the snowy owl episode would be a good way to bring him in and we were trying to wait for a snowy owl sighting so we could all go out together record I could share the information that I dug up on snowy owls and Dan could give us the experience of what it's like to go out and photograph and just experience these owls down here in their winter habitat. But the owls did not cooperate. (laughs) So we've been waiting for what, probably a month? Yeah, at least. Something like that since Christmas Uh, a month ago. And it is worth saying that's not the reason we haven't put
2: an episode out. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of the reason. It's just one part of the reason, but
0: uh, the other part has to do with me. and and, uh, (laughs) More drama than we need to get into. All right. So (laughs) we decided, rather than keep trying to wait and, and keep you guys not hearing another Field Guides episode, we decided to come out here to the Erie Basin Marina. So we are out here on the first day of February. Oh, yeah. Yep. So almost Groundhog Day. And... This is the first time we've been down here on Lake Erie. We've been to Lake Ontario. And
2: I was just thinking about this on the way here. We're always like, we're 20 minutes south of Buffalo, or we're
0: 50 miles <laughs> east of Buffalo. But today we are in, in Buffalo. Buffalo. <laughs> yeah. So we are here on the shores of Lake Erie. We have the skyline of Buffalo behind us. And out in front of us, we have a semi-frozen section of the lake. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're pretty much at the point where the Niagara River leaves Lake Erie, Yes. correct? So for those of you listening, just think of the Great Lakes. We're kind of right-hand side, the eastern edge of Lake Erie, right at the edge of the Niagara River where it's gonna head north, go down Niagara Falls, head into Lake Ontario, and then out into the St. Lawrence Seaway, right? Mm -hmm. And we have some waterfowl here that's making use of the open water, and Dan's going to tell us exactly what we're looking at, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, every single one. Well, I I definitely
1: see the one that's sticking out to me is the long-tailed duck, and that's what we saw. Um, here last time, but there's some decent sized rafts with scop and some golden eye and there's other mergansers. And if you look out on uh, that direction, out more towards the water, there's some pretty significant sized
0: rafts out there, but oh, they're, yeah. they're, they're just, uh,
1: they're dots from here. Can't see what they are from this distance. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so we came out here because um, as Dan just mentioned, we were out here last Sunday, about a week ago, Yes. Um, for just a hike and we were hoping to see if any, we actually came out here to see hopefully the purple, purple sandpiper sandpipers yeah. that had been spotted here with our friend Tom Kerr, but we did get to see a snow yowl. Yes. Tom got one in his scope, but oh, it was ooh. more long-tailed ducks just taking off
2: so I don't know if the mic picked that up, the sound it, of the long-tailed ducks. It picked up their call, yeah, yeah. or whatever the noise the,
1: it, it is they the got worst. bored
2: with us and. It, that's an actual call, or is it? Is it a wing whir or what it's is probably
1: it? probably their wings, just like the morning doves, yeah so Oh, there was a diving duck just now. Yeah, that's the the long cow going. Nice.
0: Uh, Formerly known as Old Squaw, right? Yes. I think they changed their names. (laughs) So how far out would you guys say the break wall is there? A few hundred yards? Definitely, yeah. So there's a break wall in the distance, and that's where we saw the snowy owl last time. And, you know, we could see it through the scope, but it was pretty far out. Yes, Yeah. Yeah. you need a pretty high-powered
1: scope or high-powered binoculars to get a good look at the brake wall, so it can be challenging, but that's been the best bet of where they've been at recently. So.
0: And it's kind of been surprising that we've had virtually no sightings here in Western New York for the past, what, six weeks almost, a month to six weeks. So right?
1: it's it's not no sightings, but it's significantly reduced, especially when you compare it to the last few years. Um, I, I was telling Steve earlier, there's days where I'd go to Uh, the Buffalo Harbor and I'd see three snowy owls at once. This winter I've seen three total for the whole season. And all I do is chase after owls really in my spare time. So. Now we should say there were owls
0: not far away just across the border.
1: Yes. Yeah. There's more, if you look on eBird there's more and they're in similar habitats right on the water's
0: edge just on the other side of the lake in Canada. And since we're still in the middle of the pandemic the border is closed to non-essential traffic and for some reason they don't consider us Essential. This they, is essential. They don't.
2: They don't consider owl prowls essential. traffic. <laughs> They're wrong. Unfortunately.
0: Could we take a boat? No, I guess we could because it's mostly frozen, right? No, you didn't find a loophole. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so folks, what we're going to do today is we're going to give you some background info on snowy owls. But the real reason that I decided to look into this is because we wanted to find out the answer to a mystery, and see if the research out there can help us find the answer to owl eruptions. And these are irregular seasonal movements of species like snowy owls into areas you don't normally find them. So, as we often say on the podcast, for years when I would teach people out in the field about snowy owls, I had my kind of canned information about why snowy owl eruptions occur. And as usually happens, we're gonna find out that I was totally wrong. Totally wrong, (laughs) or was it useful enough information or was
2: it actually just totally wrong?
0: Uh, it was, there's, there were really two main hypotheses about why they happened with snowy owls. Yeah. And I bet on the loser. Got it. (laughs) Did you even know about the winner? I don't think I did. Yeah. No. So I was basically giving what, what I was taught. Right. Dan, before we get into all that though, why don't we give a little of your background? So um, Dan came into the field guides fold because he was a a former student of mine at, at UB. And uh, we've kept in touch, sporadically. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, for sure. I do have to admit, I have to be honest, that as my student and then uh, now as my friend, whenever I've seen your last name, I just say Dan M. Yes. Um, (laughs) And you just told me five minutes ago, again, how to pronounce your name, but I've forgotten again. So, it's for the audience, your official name. My official name is Daniel (laughs) Modizenik. And you're not the only
1: one that struggles with this immensely, so no worries. (laughs) And. What is your background? Yeah, so I started uh, going to UB in the environmental studies program. This is where I had the privilege of taking a wilderness course. Aww. And uh, then I, I interned with Earth Spirit. That's an, uh, another way we were kind of connected we about with Earth our Spirit associations with Earth Spirit. And then uh, I had an internship at Reinstein Woods. Uh, I moved in, ran a nature camp in North Carolina for a summer. Then I came back and worked with Earth Spirit. And now I'm full time for the Friends of Reinstein Woods at Reinstein Woods Nature
0: Preserve. So you are an environmental educator? Yes, Yes. correct. And longtime listeners might recognize Reinstein. We've done a couple episodes there. Yep. We did the uh, Witch Hazel episode. Oh, right. With Jerry. We did Fall Colors there. We did. One of our. Episode uh, two or something. Yes. And then we also did our deer-exclosure episode there with Kristen, nice. uh, another educator there. So glad to know that you've gone on to environmental education and that Dan is lucky enough to still have a job during the pandemic. Yeah, because, for real. Yeah. <laughs> support your local environmental educators. They are struggling right now. No one's bringing people into schools. Yeah, Right. exactly. So we should mention though your photography, right?
1: Yes, I am an amateur wildlife photographer. It's what gets me out in the field a lot. It's my, I would say primary hobby outside of work. And uh, I do like to chase after owls the most. So while I do focus on birds and sometimes other mammals, owls are normally what I'm going for. If I upload something else, it's usually because I went out for an owl and couldn't find one.
0: So where can people check out your work? You're on Instagram, right?
1: Uh, yeah, so I do have an Instagram account. It's called Into the Wild Photography 2018. And there's an underscore in between each word because I was already taken up. So it's kind of obnoxious, but yeah, I post there <laughs> and then just uh, my personal Facebook page. And we'll put that so stuff in it. the We'll put those links in the episode notes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah no so problem.
2: everyone who's scrambling to write that down, don't worry about
1: it. <laughs> we got you covered. Yeah, Lovely. I could use my last name in the name, so <laughs> can't complain too much. <laughs>
0: let's get into this and folks we do need to say that we're out here on the water it is gonna be windy so we're gonna to try to limit the amount of noise that we get from the wind but it's just gonna be unavoidable for much of the episode if it gets too bad we may find another spot yeah what do you think is Steve's looking around
2: we, we might want to just take shelter briefly and then we can
0: come out again all right. <laughs> <Okay>.
2: yeah
0: <laughs> all right folks so we have moved to a somewhat less windy position uh, so let's get into it now I am required by law to mention that snowy owls, they were the owl that was in the Harry Potter movie. <laughs> Anytime you talk about snowy owls, you have to mention that. But really I'm just saying that to give people an idea, just in case there's somebody out there that doesn't know what a snowy owl looks like. Right? You
2: know what, the chance of someone being more familiar with Harry Potter than snowy owls, yeah, that makes it's a lot high, of sense. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: when I teach about them, the kids never know what a snowy owl is. And then I go, who's seen Harry Potter?
0: Does anyone know Hedwig the Owl? Oh, yeah, I love Hedwig. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so I did happen to find in some research, people were worried at one point that the public was going to go out and try to get snowy owls as pets because of the movie. Oh, but interesting. But the, the article did say that it doesn't seem to be the case, which okay. is a point for humanity, I suppose. <laughs> right. right. So these birds, they are the largest North American owl by body mass. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Not by wingspan. But they do migrate the farthest distance of any owl, and I think it's fair to say that they are the top avian predator in the Arctic. As far as where they are, they're typically found on the open tundra, all the way around the Arctic Circle. Now, get this: sometimes they can weather temps as low as negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. And we're going to get more, more on that later. But during migration in the winter time, now when we're recording. They're found in open country as far south as along the U.S.-Canadian border, including New England and New York. Now, that's during normal years. During eruptive years, and remember, we're going to talk more about eruptions later, they can move as far south as the northern half of the lower 48. Although, as we'll talk about when we cover eruptions specifically, they can travel much farther south during periods of high eruptions or if you get a bird that's severely lost. So let's get into physical description of these guys. We already mentioned, and as Dan backed up, to the largest owl by mass, but I wanted to compare them with great horned owls to give people an idea. As with most raptors, Steve, hmm. how do you tell males from females with most raptors? Do you remember? The females usually bigger, Very but, good. Yeah. but I need them side by side to be able to tell that most of the time. Right, right. Yeah. But that does hold true for snowy owls as well.
2: Right. So uh, a Cooper's hawk is the female of a uh, sharp <laughs> Very good. <laughs> okay. I,
0: that's what I thought. Yeah. We're not going to go down that mode, right? <laughs> So our, our bird listeners, you know. <laughs> yeah. They know the difference. Sharp-shinned hawks and, and uh, Cooper's hawks. If you want to start a fight between two birders, just point out a hawk and say, it's a Cooper's. <laughs> 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 All right. So great horned owls, the length, if we're talking head to tail, is typically a foot and a half to two feet. Snowy owls can be 20 to 28 inches. So, at the high end, the biggest snowy owl is gonna be bigger than the biggest great horned owl, but you have overlap there. Right. Uh, as far as weight, snow- Luckily, they don't
2: look anything like each other. Yes. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> but, I wasn't sure when I started researching how a snowy owl compares to a great horned owl in terms of size and, and weight yeah. and all that. Mm-hmm. So, talking about weight, great horned owls are typically only three to five pounds, which blows my mind. Snowy owls are three to six, so they can be a little larger. And then you mentioned wingspan. So great horned owls, I found three to five feet for their wingspan, again, which that blows my mind when they fully extend their wings, it can be five feet.
1: Yeah, that's the number I got too.
0: Snowy owls are four to five feet. All right, so the smallest great horned owls is always gonna be smaller than a snowy owl. Now, despite their name, most of them are not purely white. And Dan, back me up on this. Typically people say males they're mostly white with few or no markings.
1: Correct. And then when the males are mature, sometimes uh, there's no markings at all, or there's less than when they're immature.
0: Now I did find a study that looked at specimens uh, at a museum in Russia. They had 129 specimens of adult males. Do you know how many had almost complete absence of dark marks? Three, three out of 129. Hmm. So at least from that data set, it's very rare that you're gonna have no or almost no markings on even a male but females are typically more heavily marked
1: correct especially the mature females they'll be heavily heavily
0: marked all right so overall they range from all white to what what color are the spots steve on a snowy owl
2: man i I guess i either thought they're like a (laughs) like a black or a brown. yeah i always
0: thought they were black but if you look close what are they they're brown. brown. They're really brown. I said black or brown,
2: but black is really. I think I was like trying to hedge my <laughs> bet. Right, right. Yeah.
0: Now, I will say in everything that I read, it would either say brown or it would just say dark. Yes. But there would be a few that would say black and brown. Mm-hmm. But any photograph that I looked at, if you zoomed, like it looks black, but it's like that dress, right? Uh,
1: <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> All
0: right, we have to edit this out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But if you zoom in close enough, every picture that I saw was brown. So, it's a dark brown. But if there's any listeners out there that have pictures of where well, you can definitely I thought, see I thought it's you black. were talking about the dress. I was like <laughs> in none of those situations
2: did anyone say brown. <laughs> right. Like you don't start something. <laughs> no, no. I'm not going but to. But the spots are brown when you look really close. <laughs> yes, yes, on snow owls. Or do they call them spots or like streaks? Are they really spotted or is it more like They're all different. There's bars, there's I've, spots. I have heard
1: bars, yeah, uh, bars. Used, I've just heard markings. They're they're not spots. Yeah. I was going yeah, uh, to ask Yeah. yeah
2: spots. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask if spots is one of those terms that like I think I know what it means But it actually has a lot of different meanings like it could be streaks or you know
0: bars or pure circles or You guys have me guessing now because I'm I'm thinking I saw spotting at one point But looking through my notes here, it all says bars or marks or stuff like that. Yeah Okay, so in mature males the upper parts are usually plain white oh does say with a few dark spots about the head Uh and the tips of some primaries and secondaries the undersides are often pure white and as you said there's some evidence that as males grow older they get whiter Hmm. now females are typically as we said more dark markings on the breast and back and they're often slightly barred on the crown now and and they probably dye their spots when they get older definitely (laughs) yeah now keep in mind males can show prominent markings but theirs will usually be lighter and not as wide. So for example, a lot of the pictures I looked at, tail bands on males, especially when you could see them side by side with the female, their tail bands were thinner or were broken and lighter in color as well. And juvenile male snowy owls often have dark markings that make them appear similar to females until maturity, at which point they turn whiter. So all this goes back to what I initially said, typically male snowy owls are lighter with fewer markings, females are darker. So that one we saw out here last week, we saw some markings on it. So we all agreed, that's yeah, it's probably a female.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and that's usually true, right? Where the juveniles or the young will look like the female adult. Sure. Similar, yeah.
0: yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> now, I mean, I think that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's a general rule of thumb, I think. Now, there is a trick that researchers use. They look at brown markings on the wing, and although it's not foolproof, it's the most reliable technique to age individual snowy owls. And oh, I'll, interesting. I'll get that into that later on, because one of uh, the research papers that I used that looked into eruptions, they would figure out which owls they were looking at by using this method. Hmm. All right, so we'll talk about that. All they, right. don't, they don't use black light, do they? No. No. No, so Steve's referring to when we got lucky enough to do some saw owl banding. Have you oh, done yeah. that, Dan? No, So if, I have not. if we get the chance, we'll invite you along, but yeah. they actually use ultraviolet light on the wings of the saw-wet uh, owls. Interesting. To age them, yeah, I forget. Wow, we'll we can do an episode about it we someday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, someday. That'd be a good one. Yeah. More
2: owls,
1: the better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. As we already mentioned before, they can withstand extremely cold temperatures. They've been recorded in temps as low as negative eighty degrees Fahrenheit, with no obvious discomfort. Now, there was one study from 1972, and this seems pretty cruel, but they actually exposed a snowy owl for five hours to, they were in what they called a metabolism chamber. Mm -hmm. So I assume from what I could tell from the paper, it was just a chamber where they could control temperature and wind speed. Right. Five hours they exposed it to negative 135 degrees Fahrenheit. That's negative 93 Celsius. Wow. Now this was back in 1972 when I feel like um, the rules governing how you could treat your animals (laughs) were a little more lax. But it says, the owl may have struggled with oxygen consumption by the end of this period. (laughs) (laughs) You think so? (laughs) So snowy owls have perhaps the second lowest thermal conduction to their plumage of any bird topped only by the Adelie penguin. Hmm. So really just meaning how the feathers hold in the heat and keep the cold out. And it even rivals the best insulated Arctic mammals like doll sheep and the Arctic fox. Hmm. So it's one of the top insulated polar creatures. Which could explain why it could withstand five-hour exposure at a negative one hundred and thirty-five degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> and it's all
1: the those warm, protective feathers that give it that weight that makes it the heaviest owl. Right. In North America. Oh. right? But crazy.
0: It's still only three to six pounds. Or yeah. Four <laughs> to six pounds. Yeah. You, you <laughs> forget how light birds are. They yeah. look a lot more massive than yeah. they Yeah. I remember uh, hearing at one point like what the percentage of a bird's weight is. It's mostly feathers. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. Now, as far as the call goes, we're going to put in the sound of a snowy owl. So Dan, have you ever heard a snow yowl?
1: Um, I I feel like I, I've heard them like just screeching defensively. A yeah. lot of times they're dive bombed by gulls or uh, other types of raptors. And but um, for,
0: from what I've read and probably the same. You, they're
1: mostly vocal during like the breeding season.
0: Right, I have in my notes here, like Steve, they're largely only vocal during the breeding season. (laughs) At least Steve has a breeding season. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm pretty loud all year round. Uh, there, There was a time though, when people described them as being completely silent. But some of the information I came across theorized that since these owls aren't chiefly nocturnal, if you think of a barred owl or a great horned owl, they rely a lot on vocalizations to communicate to the other owls around them, hmm. whereas snowy owls don't necessarily need to do that, especially since they're not in the woods. Their habitats are all open, so it's not like the other owls can't see them. Yeah. So yeah. but I mean the flip side of that is where they live, it's Totally dark for three, four months out of the year. So yeah. you would say, well, don't they need to vocalize <laughs> that? But their their main call is kind of like a barking call, which I had never heard before. We'll be playing that now, so people can hear it. But they do have a whole series of um, screeches and whistles and beak clacking, probably which they do when they're agitated. Did you come across that they'll rarely hoot? It's, it's yes. hard. To, they do during the breeding season. I yeah. did. I couldn't find any recording of them hooting.
1: I I, tried. The only times I found one is when it's like some probably not very legitimate YouTube video with like, like these are minute, the owl calls in North America. Yeah, and uh, you know, I've heard some hooting that way, but I can't verify if that's actually a snowy owl. Right. Uh-huh, so
0: right. I couldn't find a legit call of them hooting. So if anyone out there has a legit call of a snowy owl hooting, yeah. send that to us, all right? Just another birder <laughs> playing recordings. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as their breeding range, as I already mentioned, they're typically found in the, in the tundra in what we call the North Circumpolar region. So all around the, the polar area. And Russia, it makes, Canada. It makes its yeah. summer home north of latitude 60 degrees. So to give you an idea, imagine looking down on the earth and imagine a circle running along the bottom of Greenland, cutting through Hudson Bay, cutting off that Alaskan Peninsula and uh, uh, over in Asia, Kamchatka, Kamchatka, and then running along the bottom of what one website described as Europe's gun show. So that's the, <laughs> the peninsula that Sweden and Norway is on. Okay. I guess if you do look at it, it looks okay. like a, <laughs> a okay. curled arm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so the breeding and distribution area of these, these owls, it's very small and local within that larger area I'm describing. So it's inconsistent, but the core part of their breeding range is in northern Europe, northern Canada, and northern Alaska. And then there's a few parts in northern, in northeast, and coastal Russia. But let's talk about their wintering range because that's why we're out here, freezing our butts off, right? <laughs> so many snowy owls leave the dark Arctic to migrate to regions further south. And the limits of their winter range, they're difficult to delineate given the inconsistencies of their appearances south of the Arctic. And keep in mind, many snowy owls also winter in the Arctic, although they seldom appear to do so in the same sites where they've bred. So they move around a lot. They right? do. They're tough to keep track of and it said in in a lot of what i read it mentioned this many times just imagine trying to research owls during the arctic winter like conditions are just brutal right (laughs) yeah so not just brutal they're hazardous so for biologists there's very limited data on overwintering snowy owls in the tundra and, you know, that can include like how many are doing it and where they occur and what their ecology is during that season. So there's just a lot we don't know. It's gotten better in recent years because of satellite tracking, because yeah. um, for decades like people are just like, oh, I don't know what the hell they're doing up there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's dark and it's cold and you know, we can't get up there. It's fair to say that the snowy owl is a partial and fairly irregular migrant and it has a broad but patchy wintering range. Um, the first-year birds, they tend to disperse farther south than the older owls. Yeah, yeah. I
1: read that too, and that's a lot of times they disperse, and then when the larger, more dominant, like, females start to move down, they'll, they'll kick the younger or less right. dominant
0: males even so further always, south. So it's just like there's a hierarchy. Uh, yeah. Like the yeah. female, the oldest females are kind of like, we get to stay here if we want to, right? And then there's the youngest males, they're like the beta. Yeah, they are the They're the, the ones that end up in the, the Bible Belt. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Do they really go down that low? They can, but it's pretty rare. Okay. Well, I,
1: actually, we call aunt, it the Bible
2: Pants. By the way,
1: <laughs> my aunt who lives in North Carolina sent me the newspaper that she got that one showed up near Charlotte. Yeah. a few years ago. Yeah, oh, so no. they can. I got show the up. actual news article.
0: One even cool. showed up in Hawaii. I came across. What? I got Florida, but I didn't get Hawaii. That's, That's wild. wild. <laughs> they shot it. <laughs> Unfortunately, oh, so. no. was it shotgun ornithology? or just <laughs> no? The... No, because it showed up at an airport, and oh, uh, no, if you man. remember our coyote episode, wildlife services uh, came in and uh, they they said they tried to use humane ways to capture it and to drive it off, but it just wouldn't leave. So they ended up shooting it. So <laughs> I still don't understand. If that. you want an yeah, interesting that. trip through the comment section of those articles, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> people get have pretty fired yeah, yeah, like <laughs> it was hard to find exactly what went down okay. but unfortunately yeah. usually when snowy owls do end up in super far-flung places at least in the articles I came across it doesn't end well yeah um, mm. one ended up in Bermuda and it died from eating a poisoned rat and yeah
2: no. just, I mean that, that happens here yeah. right or at least <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of birders that claim it happens here I don't know whether or not what do you mean like uh, some of the owls dying here because um, of poisoned you know, mammals like rats and stuff. Oh, okay. So people are like poisoning
1: nuisance animals.
0: Yeah. And
2: then the owl. Yeah. So
1: don't use poison for, for mice and other rodents. Please do not. And (laughs) and
2: I don't even know. So I don't follow it close enough to know how true it is. I don't know if there's, I don't know if they're not even supposed to, or if it's totally legal to, to use the poison. Do you know? Do you, I I think it's still legal. I just know it's it's frowned upon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can buy it at home Depot. Right. So, yeah. yeah, and frowned upon,
0: unfortunately, doesn't really mean all that much. No, <laughs> I know, but, but to us it does. <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, to us for sure. So to get back to its migration though, even though this the migration is, is patchy and it's regular, we can say that this owl likely covers more ground than any other owl, but many variations are known. And they often don't take the traditional north-south direction. I even came across that sometimes when winter comes, some of the females will go north. Oh. Like they'll have their breeding ground, hmm. but they'll winter north and along those lines one thing we have found out recently because of satellite tracking is that a lot of snowy i shouldn't say a lot but some snowy owls regularly winter in several of the northern seas so that's why some of them mm. will migrate north because they'll go out onto the sea ice okay. during the winter time
2: wow
0: so they use sea ice as perching sites and then in these areas where presumably they're mostly hunting seabirds in and i i try to look up how to say this Polynyas? Have you heard of these? No. Polynyas. Do you know what this is? No. These are areas of open water surrounded by sea ice. Oh, okay. So, okay. I, hopefully, I'm pronouncing it right. Polynias.
2: So it, it seems like it's not just like southern migration or like a lateral migration. It almost sounds more like, like just scatter. They're, yeah, yeah, they're, they're just, just like, go scatter go. Scatter. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Like a shotgun blast. Run yeah. for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: they're all huddled up during breeding. They're like break. <laughs> and they all fly. So south of the tundra, snowy owls, they're gonna winter in just about any open landscape. They're often windswept sites with meager <laughs> cover, <laughs> yep. which is yeah. pretty much where we are. And that's why we got the wind, folks. <laughs> that's right. <Yeah. laughs> so think of areas like coastal dunes, lakeshores, meadows, prairies. They can be in shrubby areas. And it's generally theorized that they pick these areas because they look like the tundra, yep. similar mm-hmm. to the tundra. Yep. One site said man-made open sites now might be even more used than natural ones.
1: Well, not this year really, but the last few years, especially on eBird, and I've seen them too, um, they love like the Batavia Airport, I think it's called Genesee County Airport, they'll even show up at um, yeah, like Buffalo Niagara Airport. Yeah. yeah, so like kind of uh, man-made structures that kind of resemble that open
0: Arctic landscape they'll go to, just like yeah. airports and things. So besides airports, you can think of agricultural fields, rangeland, areas of cleared forest, uh, these are all places they could be. There's a a lot of research. A great data set has been built up at Logan International Airport in Massachusetts because it's been a reliable wintering site for snowy owls for many years. So I'd recommend folks look up, I believe it's called Project Snowstorm or Operation yeah. Snowstorm. Project Snowstorm. Very interesting stuff, satellite tracking and all that stuff. Hmm. And at that airport, they seem to have come up with more humane ways to relocate owls because, I mean, an owl could. Theoretically, cause problems for landing or, or taking off planes, right? And I think that was in Hawaii. That's why they ended up okay. shooting that owl. Do you guys know how they catch them? Well, I've heard various. I've read various accounts of using nets, net
2: guns. <laughs> like I'm just imagining like our twenty uh, foot nets in an open <laughs> field. <No. laughs> I'm just looking like a, it's like just a windswept wilderness, and then just one li- one a little, few per- little. <laughs> landing net out there.
0: So one. Side i came across they use belchiatri traps Do you oh remember? yeah i yeah. heard traps yeah, yeah. what yeah. i read about was are, traps. are,
2: are these the belchiatri are they the ones that are like a half dome that's on the ground and it's kind of like a mouse or a mouse noise inside and there's like these little loops that they're yeah get... so there's little loops and the idea is they come in and then get caught in the loops right so yeah. well at least that's what the ones that i've been out with because i i help banding with shortier owls and that's that was
1: one of the things we
0: used so when did when we talked about belshaw tree traps before? What was that for? I don't remember. Maybe that was bird banding.
1: I think T- it was. I think it was bird banding, and you were yeah. talking about how you would capture the shorter no, owls, owls with um, Chuck. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Steve mentions that like once every three, or four episodes. because <laughs> well, yeah. it was such a good experience. <laughs> that is we such were, an amazing yeah. experience. <laughs> we go out at three
2: in the morning. You know, set everything up. The sun will come up, and then the owls come in, and you catch a bunch. So I'd brag about that too. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> so all right. Who, who cares if it was uh,
0: ten years ago now? <laughs> <laughs> You're living in the past, man. Yeah, I know. Man, that's a long time ago. <laughs> so their eruptive range, and again, eruptions occur when for snowy owls when they travel farther south than their typical range. And they've been reported in all northerly states in the lower 48, so that top, kind of the top half of the lower 48, but as far south as Georgia, Kentucky, South Carolina, nearly all the Gulf states, and then places like Nevada, Texas, California, wow. right? It's crazy. Now, within the past 10 years, the winter of 2013-14, mm-hmm. that was the largest ever recorded eruption. So, at least the largest one in the past century. And that had the first snowy owls seen in Florida for decades. Now, did you guys just hear? Just... This past week? Central Park? Central Park. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think, I can't remember the exact date, but I think it was the first time a snowy owl's been there since like the late 1800s? 130 years. Yeah, 130 yeah. years. Wow. 130 years. It's That's already gone cool.
0: though. Yeah. didn't realize uh, this probably. Yeah, yeah, no, this ain't cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about finding food. So do you guys think the snowy owl would be a specialist or a generalist? So when I read an article,
1: it was considering them specialists, not journalists. And they're saying it's bizarre that they go after lemmings, which are kind of, um, I can't remember the exact term for it, but their populations vary and fluctuate. And normally, yes, that's what it was. Yeah, pulse. And they're saying normally, um, if you're an animal that's adapted to hunting those, you're considered a journalist. So what did you find? I
0: read both. You read both? So (laughs) basically when lemmings are around, they're specialists. Okay. And when lemmings aren't around, they'll eat whatever else is around. Okay. Hmm. So they, they kind of ride the fence. Lemmings do make up the main part of their diet, and one study said they're capable of eating over 1,500 per year. That must have been a great research assistant job. Right? <laughs> <laughs> C- can you can you explain what a lemming looks like? Yes. So we're gonna get into that. Okay. So these are I'll jump ahead. Do it now. Steve. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so they're herbivorous rodents. They're members of the vole clan. So just think of a big vole. So for those, the listeners out there, a vole, it's like a mouse, but instead of having big ears, it has tiny little ears that you can barely see and their tail is pretty short. So think of a, a mouse with very tiny ears or short tail and they're more fat, kind of stocky. Not as cute as a mouse, right? Yeah. They're they're like those tubes that you try to hold on to and they just slide out of your hand, they're filled with that gel. Oh, oh. So, so they are long?
2: They're long too?
0: <laughs> well, they I would say that their bodies seem longer than a mouse, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think I've seen like a video of uh, a snowy owl eating one, like gulping one probably. down. Oh yeah. yeah.
0: So as I mentioned, they're members of the Vol clan, and they are the predominant mammal of that tundra ecosystem alongside reindeer. They probably make up the majority of the mammalian biomass in the tundra oh really yeah. yeah and they're known as key architects of the soil and plant life of the tundra hmm. now there's two main genera up there there's the brown lemming there's about five species of those they're the lemmis genus they're found in lower wetter habitats and then there's collared lemmings those are in the Dicrostonyx genus there's about eight species they're found in more dry higher elevation habitats mm-hmm. so it's generally agreed that there appears to be no what they call synchrony, or happening at the same time between the brown and collared lemmings of their peaks, hmm. and we should say, people probably have heard of lemmings because lemmings going off cliffs, right? Yes, that's oh. how I heard of yeah. them years ago. <laughs> like, don't be a lemming, right? Don't don't follow the herd. So, is that yes. true? What do you think?
1: Uh, I feel like when I first heard it years ago, yeah. I looked into it and found some truth behind it, but. It, you know, it was years ago, It's probably Wikipedia or something. But I'm not sure. <laughs> now, hang
0: on, don't knock Wikipedia necessarily. Yeah. So
1: <laughs> I, I thought I heard it wasn't
2: true and it might have been a sin of the, the crew that
0: ran them off the cliff. You're right. Yeah. So wow. it's not true. What does happen with lemmings is they do go through these popu- population fluctuations where sometimes their populations will peak to such a degree that there will be localized mass migrations. Mm-hmm. Now, right when, off of cliffs. Well, <laughs> when these things are happening, it's possible some could get knocked off a cliff.
2: <laughs> so their population <laughs> gets so big, it just keeps
0: inching closer and closer right. to a, a cliff, a nearby cliff. Yeah, and that's then they're just, some yeah. just fall uh, off. Yeah, <laughs> Some just get knocked off. But it's not purposely going off the cliff. But there was a Disney movie that apparently this cultural idea can be traced to where the filmmakers kind of made this happen through editing and kind of driving the lemmings. Oh my goodness, what the heck? Yeah, so that just kind of wedged itself into our cultural consciousness. Oh yeah. Yeah. So no, lemmings don't do that. So the feeding access of snowy owls, since there's these population fluctuations in lemmings, it's irregular that they have access to these guys. So it's likely that they can alternate between these two lemming types, as one increases and the other decreases, but researchers, this is an area of, of further study. They're saying maybe these big eruptions happen when both populations peak at the same time. Mm. Both populations of lemmings and food is abundant. And okay. you said
2: the peaks between the two genera of lemmings aren't—they're independent of each other. Correct. So
0: if they happen to peak at the same time, it, it, it's sort of unrelated. Correct. Yeah. And as far as we can tell, even within genera that's not happening at the same time, like geographically yeah. speaking. Just because they're peaking, say in Quebec, northern Quebec, doesn't yeah. mean they're gonna be peaking in British Columbia.
2: Right, uh, and I hate to back up, especially if it's something that I missed. Yeah. I know you said that they're kind of vole-like, yeah. but uh, I, I know you said one genus was called the, the brown lemmings. Are yes. they actually brown or are they white? or No, they're brown. They are all brown. And then yeah, the collard, like, what does the collard look like? Like, is it, are they also brown with like a... I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go that far. For some reason, I was picturing them being white, but I'm sure I'm
0: thinking of a different different mammal that I've seen an owl eat. So we'll post some links to pictures of okay. lemmings for people that want to know. But, Sounds good. Um, for now, just think of like something brown and furry and fat, and about five, six inches long. And, and what's their like habits
2: like? Are, do they just live under the snow? Like a vole. Or... Okay, yeah. so... They're going to be subnivian right. when
0: there's a, a snowpack.
2: Got it. That's kind of what I was wondering because I know with with voles and, and mice around here, sometimes you'll even catch it. I remember I used to walk to the library every day and sometimes like because there'd be those big snow drifts on yeah. the side of the road, I would see like a mouse scurry really quick but or a it's vole. a vole or a mouse I guess yeah. scurry really quick uh, and I could see it just barely under the snowpack. Right. It was like it would just be when they pop out for a second and go back in. It yeah. was actually really really cool because I'm like, I didn't expect to
0: see this <laughs> right around Buffalo, just walking along a street. And shout out to our Subnivian layer episode. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's a great one. So the snowy owl's biology, it's closely related to these critters. And sometimes if there's not enough of them around to feed baby owls, the adult pair won't lay eggs until the <laughs> supply improves. So even though, you know, we say that they are specialists on lemmings, but they can be generalists, their breeding success in the global population is really tied to the availability of lemmings in the tundra so we can't just say that they're strict generalists because they're the populations of snowy owls do really seem to be tied in some way to the populations of lemmings and it kind of
2: sounds like when you're talking about these eruptions that seems like it's more tied to the lemmings right? yes it, will they experience eruptions don't give away too much yet uh, <laughs> I'm, not,
0: I'm sorry i'm just i'm just uh connecting the dots you are that's good <laughs> yeah. that's good but put a pin in that all right? i'll put a pin in it yeah yeah all right, so just to give you some idea of how much of their diet is lemmings, there was one study on Southampton Island. So this is an island in the north end of Hudson Bay, and they studied the diet of snow owls. 97% of the diet was lemmings. Okay? Hmm. And then in Barrow, Alaska, they did a study over 25 years looking at over 42,000 cumulative prey items. Nearly 100% of that was lemmings. So well. again, can you imagine those researchers lemming? lemming. <laughs> well, I can imagine it because I basically did it. What I what I had to do for
2: our project was uh, we collected owl pellets from these roosting areas that that the, uh, the short-eared owls would go to, and then we would just we would bag them and dissect them pellet by pellet. And it was basically like because you had to look at the molars of because you you'd find skeletons inside there. And it was basically like vol 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 vol.
0: <laughs> I did get a cardinal beak one oh, time, oh, yeah, no. which is really, really cool. but <laughs> Made a cardinal beak super exciting, right? <laughs> But let's talk about generalists, and I would say this probably shows up more in their winter diet. In non-breeding season and occasionally during breeding season, snowy owls can adapt to almost any available prey. So some examples of this. In coastal Oregon, did I just say Oregon? Oregon. <laughs> in coastal Oregon, they looked at 62 winter pellets. And from 75 prey items, their main food, black rat. Oh. Yeah, that made up about 40%. Then red phalarope, does that count as a shorebird phalarope? I think it says. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that was about 31%. head make up 19%. Wow. And then in coastal southwestern British Columbia, there was 139 prey items, 100% avian. Hmm. So almost all water birds, mostly snatched directly from the surface of the water. Wow. And so do you remember I mentioned Logan Airport is one place they're studying them? Uh, Where's in that? St- in uh, Boston. Okay. So in one study, with st- they looked at 6,000 pellets. Uh, they did find meadow vole and brown rat predominated, mm-hmm. but they even found some of them that ate Canada goose. Yeah, what? Herring gull. What? Great blue heron. Why are they going for the biggest <gasps> things? Because
1: they're boobo, <laughs> they're
0: the, the, the bad owls. <laughs> <laughs> that is serious that an yeah. owl could take wow. down a great blue heron.
2: Like, I'd be afraid of a great blue heron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Uh, but even still, a goose? Right. A goose? That's true. Blue Canada geese are pretty big. Uh, what was the third one? Herring gull. Herring gull, which really is big. like the Just biggest, that I gull. Yeah. Right, is there a bigger gull in our area? Yeah, the great, black I've seen great
1: blackbacks black black back, here. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're the biggest in the world. Okay, we've definitely,
0: yeah, we see those t- periodically here. So. And then they're also eating, thankfully, house cats. Uh, <laughs> or And striped skunks. How dare you. I know. How dare you. <laughs> keep, keep them inside. Keep cats inside folks. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> one thing I came across that I found interesting is that, you know, they do these studies of pellets and that's one way that they figure out what owls are eating. Mm-hmm. But one study did mention that when snowy owls take larger prey, they tear it apart. <laughs> they usually remove the head first and then they eat the large muscles, and the remains are typically scattered. So this could lead to significant under identification of feeding on these larger prey animals as opposed to smaller prey, which they just eat whole. Right. So it's like, wow, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Like you would really need to be able to watch the snowy owl continuously to see, to get a real clear idea of what they're eating. Mm-hmm. While we're on that, let's talk about hunting. So we know that owls typically have incredible sense of hearing, right? But snowy owls seem to be the exception to that. Mm-hmm. So they're typically visual mm-hmm. hunters. Which would make sense for where they are. Yes. They're not in the woods. Yeah. So, like, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) They're in open fields. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's some evidence that they can detect prey 1.6 kilometers away. That's 0.99 miles. Wow. So roughly one mile. So, Dan, you know, how do they typically hunt?
1: I've heard like there's the perch hunting. So that's the most common method where they'll go on a a perch such as like a utility pole or a fence post or even like the ground too at a higher elevation. And there they'll scope for prey and then they'll attack. But I've also heard of ground hunting where they're almost just kind of hopping about on the ground searching for prey. And Luckily the owl that I last encountered on Christmas this year, I got to watch this owl do both. Yeah, so so I was reading about it. It was in in a farm field in in Lindenville. So I'm thinking some type of vole, but it was, I think it was like a cut down cornfield, And then uh, there was almost like, it looked like an irrigation ditch in the middle. So, you know, perfect habitat for small mammals to go in. And it was running around. I know they don't really hunt by ear, but the owl was also um, doing kind of the, when they circle their heads, when they they do that a lot to triangulate where it's coming from. Now, I didn't read that they use their hearing to hunt, but I was watching this owl do that. Triangulation sure. motion with the head. So why well, I uh, read
0: I haven't read that they don't use their hearing at all. Yeah, I just don't think because some owls can hunt without seeing at all. They just yes. totally use their ears. But uh, I imagine their their ears still do
1: help so somewhat. Probably a combination of both. Yeah. yeah,
0: and then they also do the snow plunge hunting into the subnivian layer. Yes. So, but I would imagine that they would have to like see something go in before they because I can't imagine they can hear the way like an uh bat hear. Or, yeah. So, great gray owls, can they hear into the subnivean They can. There? Oh, yeah, wow. they,
1: when they when you talk about like the the hearing abilities of owls, the great gray owls usually the poster species for that. Oh, okay. It's ability to hear, you know, voles and other creatures under the snow.
0: Wow. <laughs> so, I did come across up in the Arctic that it's possible for snowy owls to fast for 40 days, up to 40 days off of their fat reserves. Biblical. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) So they have this extremely thick layer of subcutaneous fat. It can be three quarters of an inch or more thick. Wow. So, up in the Arctic, if it gets extremely cold or conditions just aren't right, they can just fast for 40 days for a bird, which blows my mind. Yeah. You know? But it's likely that this is how they overwinter, the ones that stay in the Arctic. They rely on these fat reserves to survive. Mm -hmm. And then during these periods, they will enter, while it's not a torpor, they're definitely more lethargic, and they won't move around as much So they're reserving energy. I wonder how efficient birds are with digestion. Sometimes
2: I wonder about that. Because, like, obviously, you think about, like, a bird's heartbeat, and it's like... (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, and their metabolism is probably a lot faster. Right, so
2: I wonder if there's less waste. You know, I wonder how much more they. It, I, I don't know anything about this, but I'm just wondering, like, if they can build up these fat reserves and then yeah. they're able to survive 40 days. That's a future um, episode. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: it'd be worth thinking about. Right. So let's talk about reproduction, right? What does a snowy owl nest look like? Um, what I came across and what I've seen was typically on the ground, not real like structure, not like you would think like a, a bird nest on the ground, kind of just, uh, a, just a, a mound on the ground and they often line it or surround it with lemon carcasses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> Which is pretty interesting. They really
0: just make a scrape <laughs> yeah. and there is a picture, I'll put it in the episode notes, there's a picture from Quebec in that um, that high eruption year, like 2013, where it was completely ringed by yeah. 75 lemmings. Like that, a
1: complete wall. Yeah. No holes yeah. in the wall. I love it. you limits. just
0: imagine? And they, like, they just line them up so neatly. Yeah. <laughs> it was beautiful and, and kind of gross. Uh,
2: it's kind of Shrike
0: level. Shrike level. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they don't, as you said, they don't really build a nest.
1: No, which is and, normally typical of owls. They right. They just kind of and find a place.
0: The yeah. one thing that I said, it says no owls build their own nests. So is that like, I did a quick search on that last night because going over my notes, like whenever... There's a, something that says this never happens yeah. like this way. I'm like, yeah. is that really true? You know, the lemmings actually die in a circle.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've never encountered literature or any sighting in the field that Owls. indicates that they do build their own nests. Yeah, so it's always using they're, other. They're taking over others, or you know, the cavity nesters are just taking over a hole. They're the bastards of the owl or something. World. <laughs> Well, that's the advantage to nesting early, and you, you know, you don't have to build your own dibs. nest. You can take a I I know dibs
0: are <laughs> taking this one. So. <laughs> As we said, they don't really construct a nest, but they construct a scrape. And I found one account that said, one female snowy owl took about three days to construct a scrape. I'm like, what are you doing for three days? I'm like, Good Lord, that's a long time to make a scrape. Perfectionist, that's all. I guess so. So they do lay uh, a large clutch of eggs. I found anywhere from three to 16.
1: Yeah, that was mind boggling to yeah, me. But on yeah. average,
0: average it's seven to nine. Yeah. So, And as we already mentioned, when food is plentiful, they tend to lay more eggs. Um, and again, right on the ground in that kind of circular bowl scrape. How many survive? How many young survive? Oh yeah. I don't know. I'm just curious. Like, if they're, Let's say on How an many average year, there?
2: They're, they're laying eight, do all eight fly off?
1: Yeah, I did not find like survival rates. I imagine yeah.
0: it's hugely variable.
1: Yeah, uh, I don't have any like specific answers, but I was reading that there can be a, a decent difference in the growth rate of them. Like one, Since there's so many eggs being laid, the first egg right. will be laid significantly earlier than the last mm-hmm. egg. So that the first chick that hatches is able to grow more yeah. and larger. And typically in owls, like the ones that's like really small, they kind of get the rustled out. Yeah, they kind of get muscled out from the food. So maybe that means that there's a high mortality rate,
0: at least for the younger ones, but I don't know. So maybe mortality increases the later the egg hatches. Yes, maybe. So something within, that within age, a who clutch. Knows? Yeah. But I did find, within I found one reference, I cut it out, but you brought it up, that <laughs> in snowy owl nests, often the older chicks will help just incidentally incubate the younger chicks. Like before they hatch, they'll Hmm. help incubate those eggs because they're big enough where their body heat is actually doing something. Hmm. There's also been found that geese, ducks, and shorebirds of several species gain incidental protection by nesting close to snowy owl nests. Oh, that's Hmm. so cool. (laughs) Now, the snowy owls will sometimes kill and eat the young and adults of those birds. But there's a trade-off. Yeah, Yeah. that's the price you You gotta risk it to get the biscuit. (laughs) (laughs) But they might protect me from something else. Mm -hmm. Now I did find on Wikipedia and several other (laughs) sources that aggressive encounters with parent snowy owls are said to be, in quotes, genuinely dangerous. And one resource has claimed that the snowy owl is the bird species that's has the most formidable nest defense display towards humans. So I read this and I'm like, all right, I gotta look into this. Yeah, for sure. So I spent an hour or two maybe looking into this. I could not find any incidents of people actually being attacked by snowy owls.
1: Hmm. That kind of makes sense though. I mean, where they're breeding is so far north. How many people are actually going out in the Arctic tundra to go mess with snowy owls? (laughs) Exactly. But I, I've seen videos of them like driving off, um, you know, like wolves and foxes sure. and other creatures. Yeah, there were
0: lots of uh, yeah. references to that driving off predators. Yeah. But one website, I thought it was funny. They said. The first sign of an impending snowy owl attack may be when you feel their sharp talons scrape the back of your head. <laughs> like that's not an impending attack. Yeah, that, that is the att- that's happening. That's, that's the first own. attack. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or when you see a large angry bird flying straight at your face or head. <laughs> like, well, that's is, when you know one's coming. This is great advice. Yeah, you know
2: you know you're about to get punched in the fi- in the face when a fist makes contact with right. your cheek.
0: <laughs> you may be in a fight. <laughs> All right. So the next part in my notes here it does talk about the caches of lemmings around a nest, which mm-hmm. I just thought was cool. I'd never heard of owls doing that before.
1: I've heard of other owls doing that with maybe feathers and things. I've never heard of them using like dead rodents to do so. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's. It's crazy. I agree with you
0: with that one. So the one record said there was more than eighty lemmings on one nest, and that the female she usually doesn't start hunting until the oldest chick is about three weeks old, but. One reference actually said that sometimes the females don't need actually to hunt. If the males are successful enough, they can just kind of pick up the voles right hmm. there. Yeah. Right? Pretty I'm sweet. wondering
2: I'm wondering if the uh, that aggressive nest behavior towards humans, it was a, just an author's note. The author was like counting s- 78, <laughs> 79. Oh! <laughs> Angry owls flying straight at my face or head.
0: Oh, talons on the back of my head. <laughs> Alright. So let's talk about taxonomy yeah! Oh, right. All right, so Dan, you seem to know, what is the Latin name of these guys? Uh, Bubo Scandiacius is okay. what I got. Did I pronounce that right? I think so. <laughs> I was going to say Scandiacus, but Latin is a dead language, so there's no one yeah. here to tell us we're around. I believe I listened to an audio recording before. There you go. Must be true. Yeah.
1: All right, what does that mean? What I found for Scandiacius was Scandinavia, originating right. from Scandinavia, and then it was a little bit harder to find Bubo. The only answer I really found was it just means owl. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and then that's um, what I found, too. I was trying to look for the origin of the word, too, and they're saying the bubo kind of sounds like the hoot that they make. And I'm like, I don't know about that. I don't know yeah. about that. I'm like, I think it just means owl. <laughs> Let's go with that. So
0: Linnaeus, in his uh, 1758 Systema Naturae, did I say that right, Steve? I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> he actually listed the males and the females as separate species. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Which I thought was weird, but he had the male as Strix. Scandiaca, which means Scandinavian screecher. Okay. And the female as Strix Nictia, which means night screecher. But they right now they are a member of the true owl family. And it's not quite as bad as trying to identify a Cooper's hawk or a sharpshint hawk. <laughs> but over the decades, I found at least three different scientific names. So there's yeah. been a lot of debate about where this owl should be. 3 is
2: nothing. You should well, I know, you should I know. research plants.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. But for for birds, right? And the
2: family is Strigidae or is that a different or am I getting that strig-a-day. confused? Strigidae. Yeah, no. Strigidae. Okay. Yeah. So strig-a-day. that's
0: the true owl family. Yeah.
2: So until recently Oh, who's, sorry, owl. I'm interrupting you. No, okay. Who's not a true owl? Is that a barn, barn owls, owl? Barn owl yeah, yeah, So they're, when, they're you the,
1: when you divide the, the uh, Strigoforms by orders, there's like the typical right. owls and barn owls. Yeah.
2: Got it. They're the freak. Right? Uh, they're the freak. Yeah. yeah. Sound like one. <laughs> 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 and what's their family? Do you know? What's their uh, genus? Is it Titanidae for the, the that family? Right. I sounds, think that's what it right. is. Sounds yeah. good. Uh, sounds, it's been years since I've
0: thought about it, but out there in the world somewhere, someone's listening to this and they just had to pull over. Yeah. No! (laughs) I think that's it. I probably
1: just butchered the pronunciation.
0: We'll put it in the episode notes. Yeah. So they were, for a long time, they were the sole member of a distinct genus, but DNA sequencing, lovely DNA, it's shown that they're very closely related to the bubo horned owls. Yes. So they diverged about four million years ago and they're most closely related to the great horned owl. So you'll still see, I found a lot of websites that basically said, oh, they're, they're still being debated, but it's mostly debated on osteological distinctions. Do you know what that means? Nope. Like <laughs> bones. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Bones. Something about like the, like yeah, the hip area bones. Some people are saying, well, look at that, it doesn't fit. And I just feel it's that's, like that's 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 old fashioned. Right. Like I feel like yeah. the DNA people are like, look at the DNA. Yeah. And then they'll be like, But well, look at the bones and they're like, look at the DNA. I think yeah. DNA trumps everything. And, else. Right. Yeah. They're like, it's DNA. <laughs> I do have to say the other day someone posted a bottle of water and it said non GMO water. And they've had to point that's out the like good stuff water doesn't have genes <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing to modify yeah it's not an
2: organism yeah, somehow <laughs> okay. they were able to um, modify all the uh, bacteria yeah. genomes <laughs> that were in there
0: yeah all right so do you guys know how long snowy owls can live for hmm. Le- i'll just take a guess 20 years that's a good guess 25 25, 25 there you 25, go 25. okay so typically in the wild we figure about 10 years right but 25 seems to be in captivity, about how long they lay it for. It can up to 30. One in the wild, it was banded in Massachusetts, possibly its first winter, and then it was recovered dead in Montana 23 years later. Wow. So that was a badass snowy owl. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about how they're doing. So do you know how they're doing, Dan, like conservation-wise? like I've I read a couple things, some of them were
1: I think it was uh, like vulnerable Mm -hmm. is what I came across. It's not like they're endangered, but they're they're not great.
0: So for a long time, we figured snowy owls were doing well, but again, these guys are hugely nomadic. It's hard to kind of keep track of where they are throughout the year. They're difficult to survey.
2: Yeah, and I would just assume that they're doing fine because when I think of them, like I think of areas like Russia and Canada and, and areas like that, and that's just like a whole lot of habitat you know what i mean like there's not it's not like high density of people up there right but think about climate change but climate change what's happening up there right yeah
0: so i guess i mean i i don't know how much uh so up until about 10 years ago the estimate for the number of snowy owls was anywhere between two and three hundred thousand in the world Hmm. which sounds good so that was from two groups the international union conservation for nature iucn They have the red list. They're kind Mm -hmm. of like the standard, the gold standard. But then also Partners in Flight. Have you guys heard about this group? I don't know. Partners in Flight, it basically covers all of North America and South America, but it's really the US and Canada that kind of drive it. It's a cooperative effort of all these partnerships with federal, state, local government agencies, as well as foundations, organizations, conservation groups, and even industry and academics and private individuals, all these people working together to look at birds and their conservation status. I'll put links in the episode notes to them. But Partners in Flight and the IUCN, they kind of said, they're probably doing pretty well. But within the past 10 years, these two groups using more recent data, they've really discovered that all prior estimates were extremely excessive. And that now estimates say there's probably only between 30 and 60,000 Wow. snowy owls globally hmm. and during lemming declines when the populations are low the number of nesting females may drop down as low as 1700 worldwide wow, wow. so it's a dangerously low number now that it, it makes breeding me think, females
2: right but it also makes me think of their like what we call an effective population size right which doesn't completely reflect their actual population size it more reflects the variability within the
0: the whole population right especially so. the genetic health you're talking right. about right yeah because yeah. even if you have a bunch if you don't have that genetic health that's a right. serious problem
2: yeah like if the, if they're all uh if they're also inbred you know right. th- then their effective population size would be really low even if their population numbers were really high then they're just more susceptible to changes in their environment and they won't be
0: able to adapt it can lead to the coolest named but worst ecological process the extinction spiral Oh, yeah. (laughs) So it's estimated that their numbers are less than 10% of what they once were. So due to this, in 2017, just four years ago, the IUCN upgraded them to a vulnerable species. Hmm. So just here in North America alone, in the past uh, 50 years or so, their population has dropped. It's estimated about 64%. Wow. So they're in trouble. And as I already alluded to, climate change, it's widely perceived as probably the primary driver of the decline Mm -hmm. because just imagine as temperatures rise there's going to be factors like increased rain and reduced snow that's going to have a huge effect on the lemmings right (laughs) and then in turn the snowy owls right so then the other issues related to that it's going to modify migration vegetative composition that's going to be altered that's going to affect the lemmings and Mm -hmm. remember the lemmings Mm -hmm. are going to affect the vegetation there's going to be increased insect disease and parasite activities and then snowy owls could also suffer from hyperthermia. Oh, too warm? Too warm. Too much, uh, their metabolism right. too high? Because imagine, yeah. these guys are adapted to these extremely low cold temperatures, yeah, right? right? Um, and this past summer, remember, up in Siberia, that one town hit, what? 100 degrees Fahrenheit? What? Yeah. Dang. These are all matters of concern. And then we also talked about how they can hunt off of the sea ice. If there's no sea ice, <laughs> that's kind of a problem. Right? Yeah. So evidence of these ideas it seemed to play out in Greenland when the lemming population collapsed there from 1998 to 2000. During those two years the lemmings numbers declined quickly they dropped from 12 per hectare to less than two per hectare and this resulted well at least it was correlated with a 98% decline in owl productivity. Wow. Alright so that (laughs) folks that was my introduction to Snowy oh House. Oh my God. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't know what, what we're doing on time. We're gonna have to check this. So this may be the spot where we separate this into two episodes. It's, it's been over an hour. Is easily. It?
2: Well, the last time I looked was 54 minutes and that remember how I broke it into All two right. already? So, this, this so two exactly
0: one it. hour All right. plus no. whatever was happening before. So we may have to cut this into two most likely. So this is a good spot to mention a sponsor. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> so this episode is brought to you by Gumleaf USA. That's right, makers of fine rubber boots. Mm-hmm. And back when Gumleaf first contacted us about being a sponsor, they were kind enough to share some boots with Steve and I. Yep. And we have put many, many miles of use into those boots. So we got to say they are the fi- I got to say they are the finest rubber boots I've ever had. I mean, as someone that's had to use them for you know work a bunch.
2: These, I wish I had these back then. You know, Uh, now I just wear them for fun. I wish I had them when I had to (laughs) wear doll rubber boots for the job. Uh, But they're great. They're made of 85% rubber, so they can bend. Up Uh, to a million times. (laughs) That's what it says in the literature.
0: (laughs) Well, I should say, that's not what it says in the literature. That's what it says in the company literature, right? There was a study about gum leaf boots that some independent organization did. But we, we can back up. They can bend a lot without cracking or breaking. And they've been kind enough to give a special offer to Patreon members, supporters of this podcast. If you are a patron, you can get free shipping on any Gumleaf order. That code is available on our Patreon page. So check out gumleafusa.com.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I hate to game the system here or let you guys know how to do it. The shipping is more expensive than even a single month of (laughs) patronage to the podcast. So if you're already planning on buying some boots, just become a patron for, you know, a short amount of time. and uh, Save yourself some money in the short run. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we'll do our official wrap-up, I think, at the end of part two. Yeah. All right, so where we thank all our patrons and um, go over our thank yous and all our orders of business. But right now, we are going to head over to Tiff Nature Preserve and possibly another site where we might catch some snowy owls. So stick around for part two.